You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. Let's do something radical. Let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer. But Father, we just thank you for who you are. We stand in awe as we, little by little, begin to understand just who you really are and what you have done for us, the extremes you've gone to to provide an eligibility for us that we could never gain for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for that love, that caring, that provision. And we thank you, Father, for your word that we're gathered here to celebrate tonight. We pray, Father, you'd open our hearts and lives to that word and that word to our hearts and lives, that we might grow in grace, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might have a better apprehension of what it is you would have of each of us in the days ahead as we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, indeed. Well, we obviously are in a study of the book of Revelation, and we are in session 15 of of 24, to give you a perspective here, in which we're going to deal with the seven trumpets. A lot of misunderstanding about trumpets. We'll try to clear up a few of those. And uh, you realize that Revelation is one of the, the only book of the Bible I'm aware of that has its own outline. First thing you do with a new book, if you're going to study it seriously, is to outline it. Well, Revelation has that in the next to the last verse of chapter 1. John is instructed, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Past, present, future tense expressions. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, of course, he has seen a vision of the living Lord. And uh, that's what he, by this time, he's this, write the things which you have seen, describe it, John. John is going to talk about what he sees, what he hears, what he experiences. This is not some kind of abstract vision that he happens to record. He participated in these things. There's dialogues going on. And uh, so the, 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 the first 12 verses deal with the, the vision of Christ. But then the second section is probably, in our, in our view, the most important section of the entire book, the next two chapters. Seven churches that existed at that time. The messages to those churches are relevant, not just to that time, but through all time in some surprising ways. And then after that, of course, we have the third section that we're in right now. But just by way of a quick perspective, chapters 2 and 3 d- dealt with seven churches. and We discovered how they're organized. We noticed that once you understand that structure, several things emerge. The promise to the overcomer, one of the seven elements in each of the churches, is a postscript in the first three, but included in the body of the last four, which gets our attention. We notice that it's a report card in which every church is surprised. Those that thought they were doing well were not. Those that thought they were not doing well were doing better than they thought. Each one has a commendation, an expression of concern, and an exhortation. In each one, the name, the title, all kind, every detail there is relevant to the message. Strangely enough, there are two churches that had nothing, uh, no concerns expressed. Smyrna and Philadelphia were really well off. 
We got A plus. No concerns. There are two churches that had nothing good said about them. Laodicea, of course, but much to everyone's surprise, Sardis. And uh, deep lessons for this for each, for each of us. But in addition to the practical application of Jesus Christ's personal letters, personal report cards to these seven representative churches, we discover something else, which would not be true if they were in any other order. They also lay out a history of the church in advance. We have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as we understand the Ephesus letter, it is indicative, representative, if you will, of the apostolic period, the first century, followed by the persecuted church, Smyrna, which means myrrh, speaks of death, followed by the church, what, what, what Satan could not accomplish by persecution, he accomplished by joining them, the married church, where Pergamos, they marry the world. And out of that, of course, comes the medieval church. Much said about that, and then, of course, out of that comes what we'll call, for lack of a better term, the denominational church, churches who have their roots in the Reformation but have drifted into a mode in which if the Sardis church has, you, you, you have a name that you're living, but you're dead. Nothing good said about it, shockingly enough. The Protestant commentators have a field day with Thyatira, badgering the medieval church, as I call it, the Romanesque church. Well, if that's the case, uh, Sardis is even in worse shape if it's the Reformation. So we, we need to study that very carefully. That leads, of course, to Philadelphia. Everybody, of course, identifies with that one, the missionary church. And, but that, there's a final state of the church, the apostate church, churches that are rich and have need of nothing in their view, but are actually poor, blind, wretched, and naked. Well, as we look at this, we discover the first three have the promises postscripted, so we know they're a group in some sense, and the last four, which have the promises in the body of the letter. But also, the last four have explicit references to the second coming of Christ, which causes to infer that the last four, in some special sense, will survive to the end. One of those four, the first of the four, has an explicit promise that it w if it doesn't repent, it will go into the Great Tribulation, implying that the others won't. Or if they repent, they won't. We have the missionary church promise that it expressly will not go through this strange period of time called the Great Tribulation that we are now studying in depth in the section of Revelation we're dealing with. And, of course, the other two churches are enigmatic in terms of how they respond to the, as individuals in that environment. But we, of course, are in the third section of this, chapters 4 through 22. And you remember chapter 4... Said, remember he said, write the things which shall be metatauta hereafter. The first verse, first word in chapter 4 is metatauta in the Greek. After these things or hereafter. I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven. The first voice I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. For lots of reasons that we won't review in this quick summary, uh, we believe that this is indicative of the rapture, the harpazo, and that John was treated to a an advanced experience of this. And uh, so the, it, it, that's ex expressly what it says, and there's lots of other reasons I won't get into in this quick summary. But there's one thing we do find in chapter 4 as we get to the throne of God. We learn lots of things there, but it turns out one of the most controversial but most important is the identity of these 24 elders. It's very interesting when you see the throne of God in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 6 or Daniel 7, you see much the same thing as described in Revelation, but there's something missing in the Old Testament renderings that we didn't notice in the New Testament rendering, the one in, here in Revelation 4. And that's the, tw this, there are 24 thrones. 
not just seats, as your English says, there are 24 thrones. Up uh, seated are 24 elders. Who on earth are they? It's very important for you to come to your own comfort as to what the identity of these guys are, because they're very prominent through the rest of the, the book. They represent a completed group. And the example of that, the only other example in the entire Bible of this, is First Chronicles 24, where David organizes the priests, the Levite, Levitical priests, into 24 divisions, courses they call them. And uh, so th- th- each one served uh, sequentially throughout the year. What we know the 24 elders cannot be, there are many people who say, well, they're angels or tribulation believers. No, because in chapter 7, we see them also with the tribulation believers, meaning they're distinct from them. Some say, well, they must be angels. No, because in, also in Revelation 7, we see the 24 elders and all the angels separately described. So they're not just angels. Some say the nation of Israel. Well, by the time you get through 7 and 12, you'll realize they're not them either because they're distinct from them. What are their distinguishing characteristics? They're on thrones. That's important. They are wearing white raiment. That's a big deal all the way through the book, representing the righteousness of Christ. They have crowns of gold. Now, when you try to mix the crowns with the thrones and with the fact that they're priests, you've got a problem. They identify themselves, who they are, by the song that they sing in chapter 5. They're called elders in some places. They're also called kings and priests. In fact, John identifies with them in the first chapter saying, you have made us kings and priests. And if you've done your homework biblically, you know there's only three people in the Bible that are both kings and priests. The Levites in, Israel, in the nation of Israel, that was not true. The Levites were of the tribe of Levi, and the royal line was Judah. Judah and Levi are separate. And there's there always uh, 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 judgment if a king entered the role of the priest and so forth. They were intended to be kept separate in Israel. We find an exception in Genesis 14 by this character by the name of Melchizedek who, would, who shows up there. But what makes him important is in Psalm 110 and several chapters in the epistle to Hebrews, it hammers away the uniqueness that Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. The Levitical priesthood was a temporary one, one that would be superseded. The Levitical, the uh, Melchizedek the order of Melchizedek was a permanent one that Christ is representative of. And, uh, and what makes that important, I say there's only, there are only, the only people that are kings and priests were Melchizedek, Jesus Christ himself, and his body, the church. And all through the epistles, you'll find references to that. It's important to understand these 24 elders represent the assembled church. And understand the church is distinctive. Not all believers are in the church. There are believers before the New Testament. We'll call those Old Testament saints. There are people today that are members of Christ's body, this mystery called the church, the ecclesia. There are also going to be people saved after the church is removed. For lack of a better term, we call them the tribulation saints. So understand there's at least three, maybe more, but there's three basic groups of believers, and they're distinct in the book of Revelation. And again, I want to emphasize, we're going to go through a lot of controversial material. Don't accept it because I happen to share it with you. I'm going to let you know how we view it so you know where we're coming from, but I want, our primary goal is to challenge you to do your own homework and to be like the Bereans. Acts 17.11 is, our, pass, is our, our trademark, our password I started to say, uh, is that uh, you should be like the Bereans in that they received the word of God with all openness of mind, but 
They search the scriptures daily to prove where those things be so. So um, we'll try to, where things are really important and we have strong feelings, I'll make that clear. There are other views that are quite controversial. We may hold one, but I'll share the others to give you a perspective. But in all of these cases, you should be doing your own homework. Well, that bring, after chapter 4 of the throne of God, we encounter chapter 5, which is a pivotal uh, chapter for what happens after the rapture. And it's the most important escrow closing in the universe. And the seven-sealed scroll that shows up. So on the right of hand, him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. It was written on the backside. That tells you that it was a will or a title deed. It was a legal document. You normally didn't write on the backside of vellum. It's rough. But on the outside, you put the requirements that the document referred to. So it's a will or a title deed. And a strong angel proclaimed, said, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man had to be a kinsman of Adam. You'll understand that if you understand the book of Ruth. No man in heaven or on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither look thereon. And John understands the significance. He's terrified. He says, I, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither look thereon. Fortunately, there's an exception. And one of the elders said to me, now it's interesting, by the way, in heaven, when somebody is explaining something about heaven, it's always the elders. When someone is explaining what's going on on the earth, it's one of the angels one of the cherubim. Interesting. Just notice that. One of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are, if you're a really sensitive reader, they'll hit you between the eyes because they're Jewish. Up till now, in chapters 2 and 3, the previous chapters, all the identities were the ones that were introduced in chapter 1, their New Testament identities. The New Testament identities. Suddenly, from chapter 4 on, you're going to notice, once we're in heaven, that once again will be emphasized the Jewish distinctives of the Messiah. And here the elder says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood the lamb. There again. A Jewish title. John the Baptist, when he first introduces Jesus Christ publicly, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He did that twice, two days in a row. That was, that's, that's, these, are, these are obviously titles of the Messiah, but they're very Jewish in their root structure. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. That's access. To go up to God and say, That's mine. <laughs> and when he had taken the book and the four beasts, and the, four, the four beasts, the four twenty elders, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Every time I see this verse, I'm reminded of my daughter when she was little. She came to me, oh, there are animals in heaven. And I said, why do you think that? I said, well, I, they, they ride horses. They ride horses. We, he comes back right, yeah, there's animals in heaven. I said, really, Dad? Yeah. I know, they're cats. I says, really, Dad? I said, sure, where else would they get the strings for the harps? <laughs> She, she almost hit me. She almost hit me. <laughs> and they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Notice what they're saying, gang. These are the 24 elders saying, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's who they are. They say so. And hast made, see, it's us, us. 
have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is obviously the church. Now, you'll find some Bibles have a footnote saying that some manuscripts make this in the third person, not second person. You know, not, not first person, plural, but in the them, second, excuse me, you know, the others. And uh, that happens to be incorrect. One manuscript out of 25 happens to say that. It was the Alexandrian manuscript that has its origin uh, from the Gnostics in Alexandria that had a problem with the deity of Christ in the first place. So, uh, no, the the manuscript evidence supports the identity of the 24 elders as being the redeemed, the church in heaven. And that turns out to be very important because that will straighten out a whole bunch of other misconceptions that we'll encounter. But they continue, unto him that loved us and washed us from, his, from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests under God and his Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Made us kings and priests. Now this is back in chapter, I, I put a verse in here from chapter 1. This is John when he's introducing the book. Hath made us. John is speaking of himself in that same category. Okay. Well, now we get then to the seven-sealed scroll that he then starts to unseal. We discover the first four, as you, with these seals, you break a seal, you open it a little bit, break another seal. When you've broken all seven, you've got the whole scroll available to you. So these are the, this, this is the preamble to break these seals. The first four seals are known as the four horsemen because they each unleash, uh, idiomatically at least, a horseman. And there's the white horseman who's the conqueror. And he's not Jesus Christ because he happens to be a white horse. He's an imposter. He's a, if that's Jesus Christ, he's riding in bad company. No, Jesus Christ is opening the book. It's not, he's not riding the horse uh, from the seal. But we have the conqueror. We have the, the, uh, the wars. We have inflation and famine, the black horse, and green death. These four horsemen, of course, have become an idiom in the literature. Many people use the phrase of the four horsemen are riding when they mean war, the clouds of war are coming. They use it idiomatically in a literary sense. No, these are gonna, these are, uh, this is an allusion to very specific judgments that are forthcoming. Then we have the martyrs under the throne who plead, let's get on with it. And God says, be patient. And then we have global upheaval that follows in the sixth seal. Now we notice that in all these groups of seven, there's, several, there's three of them that we're going to look at, there are, in the seals, you have six, and then there's a parenthesis. There's a change of scene. There's a sort of a catching of a breath. It's like having a cookie break or something. Let's stop, have some cookies, discuss something else for a while, then we'll get to the seventh. It's, it's sort of a build-up to the seventh one. And so, but I want you to notice the signs so far. There were false Christs, wars, famines, death, and martyrs. These are the same things that occur in the Olivet Discourse in that order in Matthew 24, also in Luke 21, and obviously Revelation 6. And then there's global upheaval at the end of each of those in advance. The kings of the earth, the great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, every bondman, every freedman hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of mountains. I want you to notice this strange, this strange phrase. They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. You say, Chuck, you're making something out of nothing. We'll see. But I want you to remember that phrase from chapter 6. Because I'm going to show you when we get to chapter 8, the main subject tonight is that we begin to glimmer something that most commentators, to my awareness, have missed. I haven't seen this in any formal commentators, but I'll show it to you and you can decide for yourself. I believe the book of Joshua is a foreshadowing in architecture of the book of Revelation. And you're going to see a, a, a surprising number of similarities between the two books, and we'll get to that. This is one of them. Here are the, the, here are the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, are hiding 
in, the, in, dens, in the rocks in the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Someone finally gave me some bumper stickers that I always kid, joked about this. It says, beware the Lamb. It's got a lion's face on it. I love it. Yeah. The wrath. Chapter 6 with these seals closes with this question. First of all, it announces the wrath of the Lamb is extant. The wrath is not something that's Yes, it's coming more, but it's already started is the point. People like, some people write books and try to say, well, the wrath, that's later. That's in the bowls. No, yes, the bowls are wrath, but the wrath's already started. The wrath of God is recognized by all the people on the earth that it's the wrath of the Lamb that's in here. And in fact, chapter 6 closes with the question, who, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And chapter 7 answers that question. Before we go on to the seventh seal, where there's a whole chapter that answers this question. So we have the sealing of the 144,000, the 12 tribes, and so forth. So chapter 7 answers this question, who shall be able to stand? Well, it's divided in two halves. First eight verses are about the, these servants that are sealed. They're from 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 of them from the 12 tribes. People who know nothing else about the book of Revelation have all heard about the 144,000 because you probably had... A couple of guys in white shirts and long ties on bicycles ring your doorbell to explain that they're of the 144,000. And, and they're the religious group that they represent, when they have a convention, have 250,000 show up. It makes it wonder there's got to be, you know, 100,000 that are very disappointed. But anyway, no, they're, if, they say, if you get in that kind of encounter, ask them what tribe they're from, and that should end it. Anyway, and then the fruit of their ministry are the saved servants in the last half of that chapter. From out of the, these are people saved from out of the tribulation. There are many people, many Bible scholars that conjecture, they don't know, but they conjecture that there may be more people saved during the tribulation than before. There may be more people saved in the tribulation than are raptured prior. That's a sobering thought. That may not be true. It's a perspective that some have. But we have the, we have the 12 tribes detailed, of course, in chapter 7. The question is, where is two of them missing? Two of them are missing. Where is the tribe of Dan? He's obviously missing. Also, where is the tribe of Ephraim? He's there, but he's hiding under his father's name. Because you have Joseph, but you've already had Manasseh, his other son, so what's left is Ephraim. So he's there, represented, but not by name. And we speculate that that's because of the, of the fact that they were the means by which idolatry entered the land. Then we get to this... Uh, chapter 8, we're now, that's the chapter we're focusing on tonight. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. J. Vernon McGee is famous for making the remark that that obviously proves there are no women in heaven. <laughs> and of course he's kidding, as I am, not even making that illusion. But, um, but the fact that there's... Silence in heaven for a half an hour, I think, is something to note, as you'll see in a minute. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. There are seven prominent angels. Some very competent scholars feel that the seven spirits before God's throne, alluded to in chapter 1, are these seven angels. They may be right. I tend to look at those seven spirits in chapter 1 as, the Holy, as a sevenfold Holy Spirit from Isaiah chapter 11, first couple of verses. But that's splitting hairs, and who knows, we'll watch and see. In any case, there are seven prominent angels all through this book. And uh, these seven angels are going to blow these trumpets. The seven, same seven angels are going to pour out bowls of wrath. So they're, they, there are millions of angels, but they're apparently these seven have special duties. 
Anyway, John says, I saw these seven angels, which stood before God. And to them, so they're apparently senior guys. And to them were given seven trumpets. Now, so that's the seventh seal that takes care of seven seals. Now, we're going to discover that with the seven-seal scroll, obviously we had chapter 7 as a, as a parenthetical passage. The seventh seal is going to lead to seven trumpets. Okay, we're going to get to those. That's the subject tonight. But I want to let you just know in advance, when you get through six of the trumpets, there's again a parenthesis, and this time it isn't a parenthesis of just one chapter, like in chapter 7 previously. It's actually a group of chapters, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And I encourage you to read those chapters uh, before our next meeting, all of them, but especially 10 and 11. But uh, when you get to the seventh trumpet, it also will end up with seven bowls, but we'll get there. I want to highlight something to you that I, I hope will be useful to you, but you check it out for yourself because this is just a, an observation. Um, I'm not going to make any big deal of it except just to show you. I'm, one of the things that I hope you gain from our particular approach to Bible studies is an awe and a respect for the total package, for its architecture. As you begin to realize the entire package of 66 books were designed as an integrated package, which is, which is a demonstration that the designer was outside the dimensionality of time because he had to know what was coming in order to do that. He had to know that in advance. One of these subtle um, demonstrations of the architecture is the similarities between, first of all, Joshua and the book of Revelation. First of all, the word Joshua is a Jewish version of Yehoshua or Yeshua. So you got Jesus' Jesus's name on one of the Old Testament books. That should get your attention right away. And what is, book, what is the book of Joshua all about? A military commander taking charge to dispossess the land of the usurpers. God had given that land to Abraham and his descendants, and the, the, the military commander was there, Joshua, to dispossess the land. That's exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. We have the lamb that was slain. He purchased the deed on the cross. He's opening the seals. He's taking possession of that which he bought, dispossessing the planet Earth of its, disp- of its usurpers. Same, same agenda. In Joshua, he has a seven-year campaign. It's the same thing's going on in the book of Revelation. From Revelation 6 through 19 is the seven-year period we call the 70th week of Daniel. And incidentally, they're going against seven nations of an original ten. Three had already been put down. The Torah, the books of Moses, the most venerated portion of the Old Testament, is ignored in Jericho. Every rule in the Torah is violated at Jericho. The Sabbath, you're, not supposed, to, you're supposed to work six days, seventh year rest. At Jericho, the seventh day, they do seven times as much. That's not the pattern normally, right? The Levites were not supposed to go to war. They were exempt from military duty. At Jericho, they're leading the procession. Now, the real question I want to highlight, who fought the battle of Jericho? Despite the song, it wasn't Joshua. Read the last few verses of Joshua 5. At night, he's confronted by someone with a sword, and he challenges him like a sentry. Are you with us or for our enemies? The person that confronts him says, take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. Joshua remembers where he heard that the last time. That was on the mount with Moses from the burning bush. No, this is, and he, he commands himself, he commands Joshua to worship him. That means he's not an angel. 
Angels never allow you to worship them. One exception that got himself in a lot of trouble over that very issue. So we notice that Joshua is the real Yehoshua, the real battle commander is Jesus, none other than Jesus Christ himself. The first thing he does, he sends in two spies, right? These two guys go in and they, they meet Rahab and they, what they, they don't accomplish anything except they get Rahab saved. See, they, they, they went there, they call them spies. Did he go there to get military intelligence? Did their, the message come back? Is that how Joshua built his battle plan? Yeah, here's, I've always wished Bill Cosby. He did such a wonderful job with the, his little rendering on Noah. I was with his PR guy once, and I tried to talk him. He should, he should, he should do Joshua's staff meeting, that same spirit, you know. Picture, picture Joshua surrounded by his generals. Okay, guys, here's the capital. The major tri- of the seven tribes, the biggest one is the Amorites. The capital of the Amorites is Jericho. We're going to start at the top and go through and work our way down. And the way we're going to do this, guys, is we're going to march around their wall once a day for six days, keeping quiet. Keeping quiet. Silence is something most people miss. On the seventh day, we're going to march around it six times, and on the seventh time, we're going to all blow our trumpets and shout. And the walls are going to come down. General saying, really? I can only guess what they might have thought, that their commander had lost a couple of marbles along the way here. You've got to be kidding. No tanks, no bazookas. I mean, there must be something we could do. Anyway, these two guys are sent in to Jericho, and they accomplish Rahab getting saved. Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz, the hero of the book of Ruth, but that's later. So these two spies, as we call them from our Bible help, Sunday school materials, I'm going to suggest are witnesses, sending in two witnesses. You see a parallel coming up here? Okay. Then there's seven trumpet events, and we'll deal with those. Preceded by silence in heaven for half an hour. I think this is the modeling. See, the, the Greek mind deals with prophecy as prediction and fulfillment. That's usually our mindset because we come from a Greek background. Prediction, fulfillment. That's prophecy. Prediction, fulfillment. That's not the Jewish model. To the Jew, prophecy is pattern. They see prophecy in the pattern of how God deals. And there's lots of examples of that. They call it the Mishnaic approach. And that's exactly what we're seeing here is a pattern that Revelation takes and just moves the decimal point over In Joshua chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Joshua commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout. Then ye shall shout. When you read the Joshua narrative, you may miss that. Because we all know they marched around seven times, and then on the seventh day they did seven times, and then they blew the trumpets of the walking. We all know the story. What we miss is they kept quiet at that last point. And that's why when I come to Revelation 8, I see the silence in heaven for an hour. That's a flag. Whoops. Let's take a look here and see if there's a connectivity. You follow me? Okay. The enemies, then, after that, are, are confederated under a leader in Jerusalem who calls himself Adonai Zedek, which means the Lord of Righteousness. I think he's an antitype, if you will, of the, of the Antichrist. And, of course, he's ultimately defeated with hailstones of, and fire from heaven, the Battle of Beth Horon, right, with signs in the sun and the moon. The same thing's going on in Revelation, except on a larger scale. And the kings hide in, in, in Joshua. The kings hide in caves. They seal the caves until they're ready to deal with it, and then they deal with it. But the rocks fall. See the parallel? Why I noticed that verse in chapter 6. So once you read the book of Joshua, 
and then read the book of Revelation and read them together side by side, you'll begin to see more and more parallels, I think, and I'll leave that to you to see. The whole book of Joshua is a prelude to establishing a monarchy. Now, something else about the book of Joshua people miss, unless you've really studied, if you studied your Old Testament, the book of Joshua also inaugurates another element of the Torah called the Jubilee year. You all know that there's six days you work, the seventh you rest, but there's also six years you plow the ground, the seventh you let the ground rest, you don't, you don't plant. When they have seven of those yearly weeks, 49 years, the next year is a Jubilee year. Now, that starts only after the conquest of the land. After Josh, that didn't happen during the wilderness wanderings. After Joshua conquers land, this is instituted by God. It begins after the conquest. What happens in the Jubilee year? All debts are forgiven within the nation. If you owe somebody money, if you got in a loan, that loan is forgiven on the Jubilee year. Now, of course, you knew that in advance, so that was part of the ter- negotiation. On the Jubilee year, all land returns to its original owners. You, could not, you didn't really sell a piece of property. What you really sold was the use of that piece of property, what we would call a lease in our vocabulary. But on the Jubilee year, that returns back to its original owner. All the slaves go free. If you were in debt and you signed into indentured servitude to pay off a debt, great, of the Jubilee year, you were, you were clear. And that's in Leviticus 25 and all through the Torah. Now, Peter, in his second sermon in the book of Acts, refers to the second coming of Christ as the time of the restitution of all things. That's a Jubilee year phrase. So there is a parallelism here. What happens when Jesus Christ comes back, you know? Well, restoring of all that was perverted by man's sin, the removing of all slavery of sin, and the delivering of the creation itself from the bondage of corruption which it was subjected to on account of man's depravity. One of the things many people forget, don't realize, is when Jesus Christ comes back, not only are we that are saved saved, the creation is restored to where it was before the curse. You get it, you, you, it's only mentioned a few places in Romans chapter 8. Speaking of the creation, you know, that's, that's in, the, that, uh, in the bondage of decay. It's anxious, it's looking to, to be freed from that. So, I, I, now there's something very strange about the Jubilee year. If you start studying it, you would think that the Jubilee year, there's seven, six years you plow the ground, then you rest, let the ground rest. They do that for another group of seven. Well, you've done that seven times, 49 years. The following year is the Jubilee year. You would think that the Jubilee year would start on New Year's Day of the next year. It doesn't. It starts 10 days later. It starts on Yom Kippur, not on the Feast of Trumpets, not on Rosh Hashanah, the same day, on the Feast of Yom Kippur. So I'll let you think about that, which is followed five days later, of course, by the Feast of Tabernacles where they go to the permanent dwellings and so forth. So uh, there's a great deal of study there. I'll leave that to you. Let's move on to Revelation 8, verse 3. Some of you have taken your log-log paper and have extrapolated it. At this rate, we'll probably get through chapter 8 by a week from Tuesday. But we'll, trust me, it'll, it'll pick up. Revelation 8, verse 3. Another angel came. And by the way, the word another in the Greek, the Greek has two words for another. Alos or heteros? Heteros is, I want another of a different kind. Alos, I want another of the same kind. See, in, in English, you can't tell. I want another pencil. 
What was wrong with the last one? Well, in other words, you don't know what I'm asking for, see. In the Greek, it's clear. I want another that's different. This one's black, I want red or something. If it's alos, I want another of the same kind. This is alos. So this is another angel. This is not Jesus Christ. Some commentators speculate this might be because he has to do with the prayers here. It might be Jesus Christ. There's a couple of places in the book that uh, it'll be a little unclear whether it's Christ because sometimes uh, you know, Jesus is used idiomatically. Like the angel in the Old Testament, he's called the angel of the Lord in some cases as, a, as an idiom. But anyway, another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Don't confuse the two altars in the tabernacle. You really, if you're serious about your Bible, you need to understand the architecture of the tabernacle which is replicated with some additions as in the temple. But when you enter, there's only one door, there's only one way in. As you get there, the first thing you encounter is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. And that's where all the blood was shed and all that was going on. Then there is a laver where you wash before entering the holy place, which is the, the, was the building itself. And uh, so once you enter the holy place, in there to the right was the table of showbread, to the left was the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick or lampstand. And then you encountered another veil in which behind, behind which was two things, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Associated with them, but in front of that veil, is a golden altar, roughly a foot squared and a couple of feet high, as, as, where, they had, where they offered incense. It's an altar. It had burning things, but it burned incense. And uh, don't get those two confused. The golden altar is always associated. Many people get confused because it's associated with the Ark of the Covenant. But it had to be tended on three times a day, which meant it had to be outside the veil because you couldn't go inside. Only the high priest could, and only once a year, and only after great ceremonial preparation. So to tend it three, three, you know, three times a day, the, the priest had to be able to get it the golden altar. Anyway, in this case, though, he's given a golden censer, and it was given to him much incense. Incense is always uh, represented, represents prayers, prayers of the saints that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So the idioms are very, very colorful here because as the incense is going up to God, the prayers are going up to God. It's the, it's the idea. And the, uh, the perfume, the incense that was used, was reserved only for the tabernacle. If you were in a Jewish home, you couldn't use that stuff that was reserved for God. There are other things they could use, but not that. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar. This is strange. And cast it into the earth. He's answering the prayer. The prayers, you may recall, from the fifth seal were prayers of the martyrs for vengeance. They're they're, they're anxious to be avenged. And now it's going to start. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. That phrase will repeat itself four times in in the book. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So this is all a preamble, getting ready for the trumpets to sound. Now these trumpets are, the, are warning trumpets. The trumpets are going to be disastrous, but they are just a prelude for what's coming. Okay? When the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Vegetation is devastated to what's going on here. Hail and fire mingled with blood. So it's, this is not just a normal hailstorm. It's apparently 
um, hail with uh, some cosmic kind of hail with fire mingled with blood and cast upon the earth. Um, I don't think these are idioms for false teaching or other. You know, some people have pre- you know, preached sermons uh, trying to make these just idiomatic for something spiritual. No, I think they're real hail, real fire, and because a, a third part of the trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. I've studied the book for 50 years, and every time I get into it more, I, it always drives me more and more to take it literally. I think it means what it says and says what it means. So we have the first trumpet. A third of the trees and grass is burned up. The second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire. Notice, as it were. Now, that means it's a simile. If it's as something, he's, you know, he, he's, he's fast as a lion. or so It's a simile. Okay, without the as or like, it's a metaphor. But in this case, it's a simile. It, as it were a great mountain. That doesn't mean it's not a great mountain, but it's not. It's like a great mountain. Could be a giant meteor. That's just a speculation. Who knows? A second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire, was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood. Boy. Three-quarters of the Earth's surface is just under the Pacific Command. If you study the Navy, you know the PACCOM, the Pacific Fleet, covers three-quarters of the Earth's surface, just the Pacific Ocean. The Atlantic, another big chunk. So a large part of the surface of the Earth total is oceanic. But this mountain, some kind of meteor, Crashes in the sea. A third part of the sea became blood. A third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. There were about 25,000 ships at one time. I haven't checked recent registries. I imagine there's probably more than that now. That was one of my older uh, attempts to gather statistics. But a third, of, a third of the ships is a lot of ships. I think these are real. I think these are very literal phrases. So we have the second trumpet, mountain of fire, falling, destroying a third of the sea. The third angel sound, there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and the fountains of the waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. The word star can mean a star, as you and I think of it. The term is also used in the Scripture for an angel. So scholars have, have different views here. Some feel that the this, this star that fell from heaven may be a fallen angel. In fact, many scholars, good scholars that I respect highly, take for granted that this is Satan falling. He is a fallen angel. He is a very heavy angel. He, he, was, he was once the angel that was in charge of all the other angels. And if you haven't done some homework on this, I encourage you to study carefully Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Easy to remember. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, as, uh, as making allusions from which we understand the origin and career of the one that we know as Satan. He is a fallen angel. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But the name of this star is called Wormwood. And... Uh, a third part of the waters became wormwood, and many, di- many died of the thing. Now, the word in the Greek is absinthe, and it really means undrinkable without harm, strangely. That's what the, t- the term t- tends to imply. 
but it is synonymous. The word is, is used in the Scripture synonymous with hemlock or, or um, bitterness, calamity, and so forth. All through Jeremiah, he uses that phrase a lot. And uh, so this could be figurative or it could be literal. And uh, the Russian word for wormwood, I'm told, I'm not an expert, is uh, Chernobyl. But I wouldn't make too much of that because, A, it might not be true. I should check with my Russian friends if it is. I was told that it was true, but maybe not. But many men died of the waters because they were mid, uh, bitter. The National Geographic lists about 100 principal rivers. Uh, in the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, about 30 large rivers in the United States. And, but apparently a third of them are made bitter by whatever this is that fell in, burning as it were a lamp. It fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. Starfell... I do encourage you, if you haven't studied Satan, to study Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I won't derail this study to get into it here. We will have talked more about him before the study's over. He occurs, the term is 56 times in the Bible, 36 times in the New Testament, 7 times in Revelation. And that doesn't include the allusions to his special guy. He has 33 different titles. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. There is the angel of the Abuso, the bottomless pit. But understand the angel was given authority. Satan is not the boss of the Abuso. In fact, he's going to be imprisoned there for a thousand years. Don't get the idea that hell is the place that Satan rules. No, you know, that's a myth of English. You sort of visualize he's down there making everybody else shovel coal or something. No, hell was created for Satan and his angels. No, he's a, he's a, anyway, but that's, don't just confuse that with the Abuso. We'll deal with more of that when we get to it. But he is spoken as, uh, as fallen. In Isaiah 14, Jesus makes reference to it in Luke 10, and of course there's a reference per, perhaps right here in Revelation 8. Clearly he's fallen, no big deal. But he will lose access to heaven. There's a big debate among theologians. Did he fall? When did he fall? Did he fall here or there? And there's all kinds of conjectures. But they're all conjectures. They don't know. Some people try to make him fall in the, verse, the verses between Genesis 1 and verse 2, the so-called gap theory. Most people, either there's two kinds of people, those that have never heard of the gap theory and those that misapply it. Okay, so if the gap theory is real, it might be. It's, mis, it's got nothing to do with dinosaurs or prehistoric. Uh, I won't, I don't want to get, that's it on our Genesis commentary. We do know that by the time you get to Genesis 3, Satan already has fallen. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have access to heaven because in Job, he has access and, he, and he's there accusing us. Somewhere along the way, and most scholars believe that one of the events in the book of Revelation is when he is cast out of heaven and when that happens, he knows he's on a short fuse. And we'll deal with more of that when we get further into the book. We do know that he will lose access that will be dealt with in Revelation chapter 12. He won't have the access that he obviously enjoys in Job chapter 1 where he's up there, you know, goading uh, God over Job. Don't confuse, now I'm going to suggest something else, again, that I'm surprised that many conservative scholars don't make the distinction between fallen angels and demons. Because what we know about fallen angels is they can materialize. They can take people by the hand. They can indulge in combat. Demons are nasty creatures, but they appear to be powerless except to the extent they, they can embody. And they can only embody with permission. And so they're evil spirits. And Jesus said, spirits don't have flesh and bone like you see me have. Distinct, something can be a spirit, but he can also be material. And angels can materialize. So an angel is not just a, is a spirit being, but he has the ability to materialize, strangely. 
Demons apparently do not. They always seek embodiment. Every time you see them, they seek embodiment, and they seem to need permission even to enter animals. We learn a great deal at Gadara with that strange exchange between the demons and, and uh, the Lord Jesus. And, uh, so, and I think in part to, to communicate some aspects of this. The demons are destined for torment. They know they are. They know their future. They recognize Jesus Christ before he announced himself publicly, and they also make allusions to the fact that that's their destiny. And they must obey Christ. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. And uh, so I encourage you to undertake a serious study of both of these so you don't get them confused. Okay, we have the third one then, the wormwood, making the waters bitter, third trumpet. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of it was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Now, was this actual damage to the sun, or is this a way of describing that it's, it's been blocked for? Who, that's splitting, you know, geophysical hair as far as I'm concerned. Something cosmic is going on here, but it's only partial. It's a third, in a sense. We're going to see, we're going to discover... This that these four, uh, you'll notice there's, they're sometimes called the judgment of the thirds. Why do I say that? Because we're going to ultimately get to the four bowls of wrath poured out, and you'll discover a parallelism where these are a third and the other ones are whole. You see, it's, this is, this, these trumpets are like announcing what's coming. The trumpets aren't concluding something, they're like warning signals. These are like firing, just firing a shot across the bow, as you used to say in the Navy. And I beheld a, and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. And the word angel here isn't angel. It's actually aetos, which is an eagle. And it's a very strange use of term. It may be just an idiom for an angel. I'm not going to badger this thing, but just be aware of the fact that there may be something else that's in view here. Beheld and heard an, an Aetos uh, flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels were, which are yet to sound. In other words, it's sort of this announcement is saying, You've got four of these things, right, so far? You haven't seen anything yet. Woe to the next three. Woe, woe, woe refers to three. It isn't woe, emph- it is woe emphatically, but it's, it's three of them. That's why in Isaiah 6, when the cherubim say, Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty, why are there three? Because it's God in three persons. It's a trinity evidence all through the Old Testament as well as in it. Anyway, so here we have the woe, woe, woe. We now have what's called the three woes, which include two demon armies in Revelation 9. We finish Revelation 8, if you haven't noticed. Revelation 9 continues these trumpet issues. And uh, so we're going to have the three woes which are detailed in chapter 9, which in, to, to many scholars is the most difficult chapter of the whole book. I don't see it. It, it is only difficult if, you don't, if you're trying to make it say something it isn't saying. Let's just read it and see what it says. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And this is where many scholars believe is somehow idiomatic of, Jesus, of, of uh, Satan actually falling to the earth in some special way. And to him was given... The key of the bottomless pit. Notice he didn't have it. It was given to him. It wasn't an intrinsic authority he had. It was some permission that was granted. Do you see the difference? Be sensitive to that. Because if it, is, it probably is Satan. And to him was given the key. This day is coming. He, he, he will have wished he had the key. But that's coming later. And he opened the bottomless pit. 
And there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. I assume what this is, is as smoke of a great furnace. Okay. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And to them was given power. Again, they didn't have it intrinsically. To them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. I'm going to show you in a few verses why I don't think these are locusts. This is a case where the word locusts, I believe, is used idiomatically, but it makes it very clear that it is so. I'll show you as we go here. I want you to notice something about the star that fell from heaven. I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him. See, this is not a star like a meteor or something or a comet. This is an idiom for a person, and I believe it is Satan. Can't prove it. Tentative suggestion. Try it on and see how it fits. To him was given. He didn't have... He's, everything he has is derivative. Nothing original. And he, his authority, he only has the authorities that God allows him to have. And the book of Job chapter 1 makes that really clear. Noth, Satan can't touch you but to the extent that God permits it. God's in control. More, more powerful is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In the world of Satan, in you is Jesus Christ, if you're a believer. And of them was given power as a scorpion. Again, see, they don't have it intrinsically. These are allowances because it serves God's purpose to permit these things. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. That's what locusts normally do, not these guys. But only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. That's an, actually an illusion uh, from the book of Ezekiel, but we'll leave it for, go for now. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Strange time, five months. The only thing I can find in the Bible that's five months was Noah's flood, 150 days. Is there a linkage? There may be. I'll leave that up to you. But of all the verses in the book of Revelation, the one that I don't understand is verse 6. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. I can't picture that. I can picture people wanting to die. But I can't visualize people who want to die that can't. Now, I'm not sure. This may be saying something else that I'm missing here. But my presumption is if I really wanted to die badly enough, I could wrap myself like a suicide bomber and blow myself, spread myself over the landscape. I can't imagine surviving that. The implication here is that they can't find it. Now, this may be just an expression that's trying to get across how dark things are. Maybe it's not dealing with the technology of the issue. But anyway, I leave that with you to sort out yourself. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And that's kind of interesting, by the way, because the German term for locust is Hipford or hay horse. And the uh, Italian is cavaletta, which means little horse. Locusts look like little horses, actually. You and I probably hadn't experience with Middle Eastern locusts. Um, there's some very interesting events going on in the northeastern corner of Nevada where these things are the size of mice. And they're there in the millions. And you, you can't get through certain things. You can't drive some places unless you have chains. 
because they're so thick and there's problems. But anyway, the uh, shapes of locusts were like horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. Not any crowns of gold, but they sort of looked like, they were sort of like crowns of gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. It doesn't say they had the faces of men, they were like the faces of men. And they had hair as the, as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. It doesn't say they were iron. It was as if they were iron. Hard shell, in other words. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And you can find people who have, who have experienced these swarms of locusts in the Middle East. Uh, the noise is deafening. So this so far could be locusts except for something that's coming. And they had tails like unto scorpions. Now that's not normal locusts. And there were stings in their tails and their power was to hurt men five months. I can, I, I, I'm fascinated by the observation that this is the same duration of, of, of the judgment of the flood of Noah. But anyway, and they had a king over them. Aha! See, Proverbs 30, verse 27 says, the locusts have no king. Why did the Holy Spirit tuck that in the book of Proverbs? So that we'd be able to unravel this chapter. They had a king over them. Locusts have no king. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is the, in the Hebrew tongue, Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. In both cases, in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word means destroyer. One is past, and behold, there come two woes more there hereafter. And so, uh, Proverbs three twenty-seven: the locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them by bands, and so forth. There's an interesting discovery I have to share with you. You know, one of the passages, if you're serious about prophecy, is, is the Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 where Gog and Magog are the major players. Now, Magog is a, the, uh, the, uh, one of the sons of Japheth, and we know who he was, basically, ethnically. But Gog is his, obviously his leader. But it's very strange that Gog shows up in Ezekiel 38 with no linkages. He just shows up. That's not like God. Usually the, these things have a linkage where you can figure out where it came from or they're somehow tied together. When you get to Amos chapter 7, verse 1, in your English Bible, it's translated from the Masoretic text. And what Amos 7, 1 says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed, a grass, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. What does that mean? I have no idea. But I was wrestling with this, and I thought, gee, I wonder how that was translated three centuries before Christ when the, when the Hebrew experts translated the Old Testament into Greek. What does the Septuagint say? The Septuagint has a very different rendering of this passage. In the Septuagint, it says, The Lord hath shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming, and behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. And this blew me away, because I happened to stumble on this. I thought, here's Gog in the Septuagint. I hadn't seen, hadn't seen any reference to this in any of the commentaries I'd seen. In those days, when I happened to stumble into this, I was in a habit of coming down from Big Bear and spending, uh, uh, doing a, a, a Tuesday night thing at uh, Hal Lindsey's church, and uh, then uh, spending the night, Tuesday night with him in his, in, in, at home. And Wednesday morning, I did a, a breakfast uh, uh, Bible study at Marie Callender's, and then I'd go back up Big Bear the next day. So I had an overnight kind of, that was my pattern. And when I finished at the Telestai at Hal's church, uh, Hal and I would spend hours in the study, you know, just there's always stuff to talk about. I said, how? And I showed him this. And he, we went to his library. He pulled down the Septuagint and checked it all out. It's, it's not even a variant reading. This is the way it reads. 
And I was stunned because I hadn't ever seen, you know, I just, I just stumbled into this as a lady. And uh, so I was surprised because prophecy is not an untraveled ground. You know, people have been wrestling with these texts for hundreds of years and I never ran into this. And I was startled that this was like, to me, a discovery. Hal was unplussed. No problem. He was not surprised that we'd make a discovery. He says, Chuck, that's Daniel 12.4. What do you mean? Many shall go to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Now, many people apply that verse to, verse to knowledge in general, but that's a misapplication. What Daniel 12.4 refers to is knowledge of the Word of God shall be increased. And so Hal's view is this, is, this is the, happens all the time. And I mentioned this, the reason I'm getting into this, don't be surprised in your own studies if you encounter something that other people have missed. It'll happen. You want to check it very carefully because the, likely, the likelihood that it hasn't been seen by someone is still small, so you want to do some homework. But don't be surprised because we know more today than we knew about the Word of God 20 years ago or 30 or more, whatever, because we're constantly making discoveries. Scanning laser microscopes are discovering things about the, 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 the texts that we, that we never knew before. We can tell the angle of the pen that the scribe hand, held when he did it. We can tell whether he's right or left-handed, all that sort of thing. So that's all technology. Anyway, so we have the first of the three woes, the demon locusts. These locusts are described as locusts. I think they're demon hordes out of the pit, out of the bottomless pit, and they are as described. I don't think they're helicopters. I don't think they're... And there are commentators that tend to translate these first-century idioms into 21st-century weapon systems. They may be right, but I don't think there's any need to do that. I think, I think God means what he says and says what he means. So uh, they're obviously demon locusts. And the sixth angel sounded, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. The U- river Euphrates is going to come up a lot in our Bible studies. It fascinates me to discover that spirit beings are territorial. I would think that something that's a spirit being, you tend to see it isn't really quite material, uh, could be anywhere. And some of them in many respects can be. On the other hand, we also know from people who have really studied demonology and so forth, they seem to be very territorial. We get glimpses of that in Daniel chapter 10 and elsewhere. And here again, we have apparently there are four angels that are bound for some reason in the great river Euphrates, and they're going to be released here. And these four angels were loosed, which were prepared, get this, for an hour, a day, and a month, and a year to slay one-third part of men. That's what they're waiting to do. They're there now, waiting for the go-ahead. Now, the river Euphrates is another interesting study. Um, The Euphrates was the eastern boundary of Israel. There's something magical about this boundary because it's the eastern boundary of Israel as described in Genesis 15, 18 and referred to elsewhere. It's also the traditional boundary between east and west. The Roman Empire, at its peak, always had a fear of the Parthian Empire to the east. It wasn't as big, but they could never manage it. They lived in constant fear. The Magi came from the Parthian Empire. When they came to Jerusalem, Herod was trembling. He's appointed by Rome there, and he thought there was going to be an incident. Uh, There's a whole background there that you should check into. But the Romans lived in constant fear of the people from the other side of the river Euphrates. The reference to this river dates from the Garden of Eden. Where was the Garden of Eden? It was east of Eden. Well, where does that make 
Eden. We know where the Garden of Eden was apparently in Mesopotamia, between the two rivers. That's what the word Mesopotamia means. Well, then Eden must be west of the Garden of Eden. If the Garden is east of Eden, Eden must be west of the Garden. What's west of Mesopotamia? Israel. Whose name is on that piece of ground? God's. And we, in our foreign policy, when we mess around with the Middle Eastern issues, we run the risk of poking our finger in the eye of God. Be careful. I wish our leadership understood that better. Sin began here in Genesis 2. The first murder, the first world rebellion, Nimrod, the first world leader, his name means we will rebel, Genesis 10 and 11. And his capital, the Tower of Babel or Babylon, the fountainhead of all idolatry and false worship. So we're dealing here with root stuff. Now these four angels get loosed, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. This is where you get the 200 million that everybody talks about. And all kinds of commentators feel, gee, that's, that, they must be the, the, the militant Chinese somehow. And I heard the number of them. That is, a, that is a big army by anyone's standards. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, smoke, and brimstone. That might be a weapon system, but it might be something supernatural. And by these three were the third part of men killed, third part of the world, by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, and the tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now, there are some contemporary commentators that try to weave from this description, you know, uh, Vietnam helicopters with their weapon system and stuff. And that, that you can do that, but I, you, know, they, they, you can see footage. You know, sometimes when they, they paint them with faces and stuff. Uh, that's fine. I think they're, I think they're demonic. I think they're... I think, I think they're demonic, but that's just a view. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works. You know, one of the things you're going to discover, it's a shocker, throughout the book of Revelation, they don't repent. The earth dwellers don't repent. You'd think with all this coming on, some would say, hey, okay, enough already. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship the devils, idols of gold, silver, and brass, and stone, and wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders or of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It's interesting here in Revelation 9.21, it lists specifically four categories of non-repentance, murders, sorceries, fornication, and of the thefts. I'm going to suggest to you that this at least is characteristic of today, murders. We subsidize murders even prior to birth. The ancients, if they killed infants, would put them on a heated, on Moloch, the heated statue, till it was red hot and put the babies on it. We found a better way to do that. We, we murder the babies in the Holy of Holies, the womb of the mother. Even pagan cultures made abortions illegal. Did you know that? I was startled to realize this. The ancient cultures regarded their strength from their population. And so for you to Abort a child was a national crime. Abortion was punishable by death. The mother aborted the child, she was killed. This is in the pagan cultures. Sorcery. The word is pharmakia in the Greek. 
The use of drugs. The drug industry is the largest constituency of any of the lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And I won't go down this path. Anybody that know any good doctors can chase into this one. Fornication, the whole promotion of sex by Madison Avenue. It's the preoccupation of today's culture in every arena, in every arena. And, of course, theft. And, by the way, when we speak of theft, that isn't constrained to individual theft. The worst kind of theft is institutional theft, where you get this, uh, you, uh, you lose your property by due, due process that's misplaced. Plundering. Socialism is the plundering of the productive by the unaccountable. That's what socialism is. That's the worst kind of theft. Well, as you go through the, these, uh, these um, plagues of the seven trumpets, you might take the occasion to do a little homework about the plagues of Egypt. You remember in, Je- in Exodus chapter 7, you all know about the plagues. The first one had a warning and waters were turned to blood. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The second one had a warning, frogs on the lands and the homes, chapter 8. The third one had no warning. There were lice on the persons. Then there was a warning with flies on the homes. And then, then there was a warning about disease in the cattle. Then there was no warning. Notice the pattern here? Pattern, pattern, so forth. Um, boils, sores on man and beast. Then there was another warning. There was thunder and hail and, and uh, so forth. I missed something here. Oh, I, oh, I see. Thundering? <laughs> I don't think it's the same kind of thunder and hail. If there's thunder and hail and fire, someone tip us off before we go outside. <laughs> we had such a hot day. You know, if there's, a, if there's clouds, you're never going to have some thunderstorms. That's exciting. You know, I really enjoy, that's one thing I enjoy about Idaho. You don't get this on the coast. These, these great lightning storms. They're fun. They're good. Fun. If you're inside. You know. Then you had another warning. You had the locusts. No one, again, the, then darkness three days. Darkness that you could cut with a knife. And then you had finally the tenth one, the climactic one, which had a warning. Firstborn man and beast. You know, all of you that have seen uh, the Ten Commandments, it does a pretty, DeMille did a pretty good job. But there's one big unfortunate flaw in the story, among others. One, one main one. You get the impression that the death of the firstborn was sort of the response to Pharaoh's indictment of Moses. It was sort of like a reaction. No, the death of the firstborn was announced when God called Moses at the burning bush. If you read Exodus 4, it was not a knee-jerk reaction to some retributive remark that that, uh, Yule Brenner made, so to speak. And so that, other than that, uh, no, it was, that was part of the pattern from the beginning. But anyway, there they are. Now, the, what most people don't realize is the pattern is warning, warning, none, warning, warning, none. Warning. There's a pattern there. Also, the first three involved the rod of Aaron. The next three involved no rod at all. And the next three involved the rod of Moses. I'm not making a big deal of this, but as you study your Bible, take the trouble to notice the structure, the organization, because there are insights that will emerge from that. Something else... There's also a calastic order that the fifth and sixth one involved the cattle. The fourth and seventh ones involved Goshen, the land of Goshen where the Jews were exempt from what was going on. Uh, the third and eighth one, the lice on the persons and the locusts, were the ones that the enemies, Pharaoh's own priests, couldn't duplicate. All the others, they 
did their own little games. He could sort of do something. They convinced Pharaoh it was just parlor tricks. No. The lives of the persons shook the priests because then they couldn't worship. And it was attacks. Each one of these are actually attacks on Egyptian gods. Same thing with the locusts. The, the enemies admitted they couldn't do it. And the frogs in the land and homes and the darkness was both involved darkness, if you read it carefully. And then the first and the last, of course, involved death. The waters turned to blood in the first one and, of course, the death of the firstborn in the tenth one. There are patterns. That's all I'm, all, the only thing I mean, there's patterns in all this. Exodus versus Revelation, you know, both of them have the same kind of thing. Jacob's trouble, that was the, that was the, uh, the affliction that they were freed from in the Exodus. Same thing, same thing with uh, uh, Jacob's trouble is an idiom for the tribulation. They cry to God and are heard in Jeremiah 31. God will command the oppressors, let them go. In Isaiah 43 mentions that. Two witnesses with miracles before the enemies. Enemies will also perform those miracles. This is all going to be echoed in Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. There are sore judgments from God. Jeremiah 25 calls the Exodus the same thing. God will protect His people through all of this. Revelation 7, 12, and 14 is going to emphasize that. The waters turn to blood in Revelation 8, 11, and 16. There are satanic frogs in Exodus and also in Revelation 16. The plague of locusts in Exodus and also in Revelation 9. Boils and blains in, Revelation, in, 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 Ex, in Exodus and also Revelation 16, you'll see coming. Hailstones from heaven in Revelation 8, we saw that. And of course, we're in, in Exodus also. And the darkness was in Exodus and also in Revelation 16 and alluded to in Isaiah 60. Hearts are hardened in both cases as indicated in Revelation 9. And there's death to the multitudes, and of course Israel will be delivered. It's emphasized all through this. So there are some parallels that you can take a look at and come to your own conclusions. So we've been through the six trumpets. There will be a parenthesis now before we get to the seventh. This parenthesis is actually chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. They are really very large summary chapters that we'll want, we'll want to pay attention to. And so Chapters 10 is the mighty angel is with a little book that he instructs John to eat. And he also has seven thunders, a very mysterious passage we'll look at next time. But chapter 11 also deals with the temple, and a lot of discussion about the temple, a couple of verses in the front of that chapter. Then it deals with these strange two witnesses. Who are they? Are they real witnesses? I believe they are. And uh, we'll talk about that in our next session. But I encourage you to read chapter 12. Chapter 12 will take as a separate session. It is a summary of the, of the history of Israel in a very surprising way. We'll take a look at that. And then we'll have chapter 13. People who know nothing about the book of Revelation all know about chapter 13. The Antichrist, as they call him, the false prophet. Who are these guys? What's their agenda? What, what's going to happen? And chapter 14 then is the harvest of the 144,000 and some other things. We'll just take one, just a glimpse of one verse from chapter 11 because it sort of ties off tonight's study. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. This is chapter 11, looking ahead. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. So this is a capstone. This is the final trumpet. This is, this is a big announcement we'll deal with after we... Notice I'm, I'm reading ahead here, chapter 11. We're in chapter 9. We've got 10 and 11 to deal with in the next session before we get to this in the following one. So that's the seventh ministry God finished. So we'll, that we'll discover after we go through the chapters in between 6 and 7, 
we then will discover there are seven bowls of wrath. These, I believe these are logarithmically intensive serial events. And uh, even between the 6th and the 7th, it's just one verse, one or two verses, but there's a parenthesis there also, by the way. I think that's fascinating to be sensitive to the architecture of the total book. And uh, so uh, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. We'll also notice when we get there that the judgments of the bowls are intensifications of uh, pretty much echoing the same thing of the uh, trumpets' judgments. So for the next session, I'd like you to read specifically chapters 10 and 11. Who are the two witnesses? Come to your own judgment. Make some guesses. Who do you think these two strange characters are that get killed and lay in the street for three days before they get raptured? Very strange circumstances. Come, just Try to answer it from the Scripture. And you'll discover there are seven thunders that uttered their voices. And John was about to write what they said. See thou do it not. So he erased that part. That's not in there. What I don't understand is why didn't he erase the whole thing? Why did he let us know there are seven thunders that uttered something that you and I can't hear? We're not allowed to know what they said until they utter it. Wonder what that is. And I believe that there's a theological reason for all of that that we'll deal with next time. What I also would like you to do, read also chapter 12. That'll prepare you for the session following. Because you're going to want to read chapters 12, 13, um, and 14 before we move on. Do you follow me? So I encourage you to do that. And uh, with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's remember that these horrific events are events that you and I are going to watch from the mezzanine. I really sincerely believe that the two chapters you need to really master are chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 4 and 5 are thrilling and exciting and you want to study those. But from chapters, from chapters 6 through 19 are dark, heavy things that are important to study, obviously, but if you tremble before them, you're missing the point. Because if you're in Christ, you're going to be identified with the 24 elders. You'll be watching these proceedings from up there. There is a big debate among scholars as to whether or not there is a second chance. Tim LaHaye was a dear friend. We are very close friends. And his book, his, his series of books called the Left Behind series are... are fulfillment of a lifetime dream for he and Jerry Junkins that put that together. And they are colorful and they've stimulated a lot of interest in privacy. But there is a danger in them in that they give you the impression that if you had a chance to accept Jesus Christ and didn't accept him and the rapture takes place, you've got another chance coming. There are many sound theologians that believe that's a huge, huge error. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, For those that rejected the truth, God will give them over to a strong delusion, and they will believe the lie, some specific lie. And they're, they're, my, my point is, if you're going to accept Christ, you accept Him now. Your entire eternity is at risk if you haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
you want to do that now. You have no idea when the rapture will take place. It could be tomorrow, next year, a week. Who knows? For you, your terminal time may not be the rapture. might be driving home tonight. I'm not trying to sound morbid here, but none of us know what a day brings. You don't want to go one step further in life without knowing where you stand with respect to Jesus Christ. Because if you are in Him, all these things are taken care of for you. If you're not in Him, you can't imagine what's coming. It's just, it, 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 I'm not here to make a big altar call thing. I'm, I'm, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't underline the urgency of you personally coming to terms with Jesus Christ personally. And you can do so in the privacy of your own will by just kneeling before Him in your own time, in your own way, and ask Him to take over. And He will. He will. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise You for who You are. We stagger as we even just begin to understand the dark things that are coming. And yet, Father, we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy. We thank you that you have provided a remedy for us, every one of us, in the person of Jesus Christ. A pardon has been granted if we will but accept it. Father, we just thank you for bringing us together. We know that in your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now at this point in time by your divine appointment. And Father, it's our prayer that your purpose be accomplished in each of our lives. We do pray, Father, that you would draw each one of us ever more closely to you. We pray, Father, that you would give no one in this room any peace until they rest in you. Father, we just would pray that you would use each of our lives as an opportunity to magnify your name and to show yourself strong. For you alone have the keys of hell and of death. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that through your Holy Spirit you would illuminate for each of us what you would have of each of us in the days that remain. We again pray, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, help each of us to be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us. Father, we would just pray that our priorities would be your priorities and not those of our own. As we commit ourselves this night into your hands, without any reservation, in the name of Yeshua, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain on our behalf. In His name we do pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash Bible 126. Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.